guess it's a function of old age, but it seems like I was just here, and you were just there. But I guess it really has been seven days. Hmm. As I begin, I think that um, I should make some remark about retirement. And what I want to say is this. Retirement is not the same as resignation. It's very important to me that you understand that. Retirement does not involve a loss of affection. It does not express a desire to be separated. Retirement, at least as I think of it for myself, is candidly an expression of exhaustion and a loss, a loss of capacity to do what the work of pastoring requires. In my case, it's it's the loss of emotional resiliency, loss of the emotional capacity necessary to function faithfully as an overseer of souls. And please, please understand that that doesn't involve any loss of love, any loss of care for you, any lessening of my heart's cry for your spiritual well-being. However, my ability, quite honestly, to enter in to all of your trials and struggles in ways that pastors must do in order to help God's people persevere, that capacity is not what it used to be. It's not what it needs to be. Now, that's not what I would prefer any more than I prefer getting old. I would prefer not to get old, and I would prefer no diminishing of my strength, physical, mental, or emotional. But the reality is I'm an old man, and my reserves are gone, and my emotions are weak. So as, as I attempt to transition into another sphere of service, and that is my hope and desire, it's to begin as, as soon as I retire to serve Christ in other concrete ways. But as I seek to make that transition, I want to leave a few exhortations with you, the people that I have loved for almost 50 years. And these are exhortations which I think are necessary for your ongoing spiritual good. And the first, the first exhortation is that you must continue to strive for a larger, deeper, more consuming love for Jesus Christ. I can't think of anything more important for me to say to you for your spiritual good. You must love Christ more, more, more. Now, I know if you're a believer in him, you do love him. 
But you know as well as I do, you don't love him as much as you should, as you could. Maybe you don't love him as much as you once did. So for your good, his glory, your good, you need to strive every day to love Jesus more. Now, of course, he is God, and we want to love the entire Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But God the Son was the one who took our form, came into our world, bore our transgressions, suffered hell's death on the cross. And our love for God appropriately finds its target primarily in Jesus Christ. I want to try to expound the subject of increasing in love to Christ by by answering three questions. It was it was my foolish thought that I could answer all three in one sermon. Uh, we answered one last week. Why? Why is love to Christ so vitally important? And I gave you three answers. Number one, because your relationship to him is the most vital, indispensable relationship you will ever have. Number two, your relationship to him is the most enduring relationship that you have or ever will have. And number three, your relationship to Jesus Christ is the most satisfying satisfying, heart-thrilling relationship that you can possibly have. Now, there are two more questions that I want to try to answer. But before I do that, I want to say something that's patently obvious, but I think it's very important to say it. When I talk about loving Jesus, I'm talking about loving a person. A person. You say, oh, I don't see him. That doesn't make him any less real. I don't see Thomas Floyd Hendricks, my father. But he's still a person. And he's in heaven And I think of him with deep affection often. And one day, I will be reunited with him. And we will share the love that we knew once. Only it will be better. You don't think ordinarily that the only things that are real are things you see. So don't think that way of Jesus. You don't see him, but he's in the universe and he has a body. He's a real person. He's alive. He's the most, he's the most alive person that ever walked on this earth. And having a personal relationship with him is life eternal. What is eternal life? It's to know God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom he sent. You must know him to be converted. But you can know him better. You can be closer to him. You can experience more of him. It's the most important relationship in your life, whether you realize it or not. And you need to realize it. And you need to commit more of yourself to knowing him and loving him. Now, as I said, there are two additional questions in this study. There is the what question and the how question. And this morning, we will limit ourselves to the what question. That is, what is 
a growing love for Jesus Christ. What am I talking about? What is it? What does it look like? What is a growing love for Christ? And I have four answers, okay? So jot them down. See if you can remember them. First, increasing love for Christ involves consciously giving increasing preeminence to Christ and to the things that matter most to him. Increasing love for Christ means increasingly giving preeminence to Christ and to the things that he values. Turn in your Bibles, please, to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Look at verse 15. Referring to the Son of God, we read in Colossians 1.15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things consist. Everything is held together. Matter coheres because of him. And he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So that all these things are true, so that in all things he may have the preeminence For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness of the Godhead should dwell. And by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him, by the Son, by Christ. Whether things on earth or things in heaven. Having made peace through the blood of his cross. That's one of the greatest, most profound statements in all the Bible. But all these things that are stated as facts about Christ point to the result that he is to be preeminent. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. Just go back. Philippians chapter 2 verse 8. Again, speaking of the Son of God, verse 8, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, of those on earth, of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's going to happen one day. That's going to happen. I'm going to be there. You're going to be there. It's going to be a glorious day if you love Jesus. Every knee is going to bow before him. The most obstinate God denier is going to bow his knee before Jesus Christ. And he's going to confess freely. Freely. He's going to confess with his tongue. Jesus Christ alone is the Lord. Now, because of who he is, because of what he has accomplished, it's a purpose of God the Father 
that above everything else, above all the angels, above all the great saints, even above his own name, his son will be exalted. Now, seeing that that is God's purpose, it might be wise for us to make it our purpose. That's what God's determined to do. That's where all history is headed. All history is headed toward the enthronement visibly of Jesus Christ. That's what God's determined to do. That's where he's bringing the world. And that ought to be what we're about. Now, why is this God's purpose? Well, it's because Jesus is worthy. It's because of all that Jesus has accomplished. He is God, which makes him the object of the angels' worship from all eternity. But then he is the God who undertook the scheme of redemption and became a man and humbled himself, veiled his glory, walked among his creatures and permitted his creatures to think that there was nothing special about him. He put himself within the reach of those who hated God and they hated him and they they called him an illegitimate son. And they said he was demon-possessed, the Son of God. They said he was demon-possessed. They said he was a liar, a charlatan, an imposter. And he endured that. And then he went to the cross. That was the ultimate destiny of his first coming. He went to the cross. And God laid on him the guilt of our transgressions if we're his people. He put them on him. Things that we are ashamed of, things that we don't want anybody ever to know about. God knows about them. He laid them on Jesus. And then he gave to Jesus what your sins deserve. The very wrath and death of hell itself was unleashed against him. And he really died. He suffered and died under the wrath of God. And then he was raised from the dead. A new body, the first one to ever be raised with a changed body. A body now immortal, a body suited for heaven. And he ascended into glory and he told us, as I go away, I will come again. You be looking. You be looking. I'm coming. Now, it's because of his humiliation, his suffering, his obedience unto death that the Father has determined that he alone will have the preeminence. And beloved, should that not be our desire as well? That he would have the preeminence. Make it your life's purpose to know him better than you know him now, to love him more than you love him now, and to give more public honor to him than you are now doing. That's loving Christ. Making more of him. But giving preeminence to Jesus It's even more than stirring fresh emotional affection for him. It is that. It is emotional. Loving Jesus involves our emotions, our affections. But giving preeminence to Christ also includes a conscientious, deliberate effort to have your thoughts 
and to have your actions and to have your words regulated by him, regulated by his will for his pleasure. To give him preeminence means that you want to bring him pleasure in everything because he's always there, he's always aware, he's always watching. And you want to show him in everything you do that your heart is toward him, that your mind and your affections are supremely his. So giving him preeminence means that you study how to honor him in everything you do. Let's say that you're engaged in an argument with your spouse. I know that never happens at your house. It does happen at the Hendricks' house occasionally. Don't let that woman I married fool you. She looks sweet, but she can be a tiger. So occasionally we might find ourselves in a little strained conversation. Well, how do you give Christ preeminence in that? Well, you slam the brakes on in your own thinking. And you stop concentrating on how to win the argument. And how to shame your opponent. Because, beloved, that, that's, that's really what we do when we argue. We don't just want to win the argument. We want to shame the person we're arguing. All right? We want to walk away saying, I showed you. I showed you. You know who's boss now, right? Forget that. Loving Christ, giving him preeminence, means you shut that off. And your thoughts shift to what would most honor Jesus in this conversation. What would most give him pleasure? And I guarantee your part of the conversation will change radically. Rather than attempting to win the argument, put down your spouse, you prayerfully begin searching for words full of grace. Words full of grace, loving words. Words in which, if necessary, you yield. You give up. And you leave the outcome of whatever you're arguing about to Christ. You invest and direct your energies toward pleasing him, honoring him. That's just one of an infinite number of examples that could be used concerning loving Christ and giving Christ preeminence more and more. It comes down to this, my beloved. If we would love Christ more, we must jettison our tendency to do what pleases us most, and we must focus upon what exalts Christ most, what brings pleasure to him most, And that's how we should approach everything we do. So, what's involved in loving Christ more? It's giving him more and more and more of the preeminence in our our hearts and in the way we live our lives. Point number two. Loving Christ more means exercising 
increasing trust in him. To love Christ more is to trust him more. Trust his power more. Trust his grace more. Trust his word, his promises more. Trust the absolute perfection of his will for your life. Trust him more. Now, you've heard me, those of you who attend here regularly, you've heard me say often that God loves to be trusted. And I hope you believe that. Beloved, listen, it doesn't bother Christ for you, his disciple, his friend, to call on him. To say, Lord Jesus, I need you right now. I've got a need. I've got a burden. I've got a a problem. I've got a, a desire. I believe it's an honorable desire. And I'll look to you. It doesn't bother him for you to do that. It doesn't bother him for you to do that a thousand times a day. Sometimes I feel embarrassed. I feel I need to go back to Jesus. I I was just talking to him 10, 15 minutes ago, asking him to do something for me. And now I, I realize I need for him to do something else for me. No, I know he's not my lackey. He's not my servant. He's a judge and ruler of the universe. But he has invited us to come to him and to cast our cares on him. He has said he doesn't want us to be anxious for anything, but in everything. By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let a request be made. He said that. He said, talk to me. Come on, talk to me about what's bothering you, what's burdening you. Turn to a couple Psalms. Psalm 2. Psalm 2. These are familiar statements. Psalm 2, verse 12. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Kiss, it's a gesture of honor. It's also a gesture of love. Love the son. And One way you love him is by putting your trust in him. Look at the fifth psalm. Turn over to Psalm 5 and verse 11. Let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let those also who love your name Be joyful in you. Now this is an example of Hebrew parallelism. In the first part of the verse, joy is connected with trust. In the last part of the verse, joy is connected with love. These two things are companions. Trusting him, loving him. And they combine to give us great joy. Paul stated it like this. Faith works by love. Loving Christ is inseparably bound up with trusting Christ. And trusting Christ is inseparably bound up with a humble submission to both the word of God and the providence of God. 
You see, it's by God's word and it's by his providence that our sovereign Lord makes his will known for our individual lives. His word, his providence. And loving him means we trust. We trust what his word says. We trust what his providence does. Sometimes you will hear your pastors speak about saving faith. You ever heard that? Talk about saving faith. That could be misleading. We use that expression, saving faith, in an attempt to differentiate between true faith that unites the soul of the sinner to the Savior. We seek to distinguish that true faith from artificial faiths that fall short of Christ. Like the faith of the stony ground here. Or the faith of the thorny ground here. Or, or the faith of demons who believe in God and tremble. But their faith doesn't lead them to submission to Christ. So we talk about saving faith to distinguish different kinds of faith. But don't think that your faith saves you. It's not your faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith that saves you. Your faith connects you to Jesus. He saves you. Faith is essential. We must believe the testimony that God has given of His Son. How else are you going to know who Jesus is if you don't believe the testimony that God has given? You believe the testimony that God has given, and then, having believed the record, you call upon the person. Jesus! I believe all that the Bible says about you. You're the God-man. You're perfect, impeccable in your nature and in your living. You died for sinners in their place, taking their guilt. You satisfied the angry justice of God. You were raised from the dead to give life eternal to everyone who believes. I believe that. Now I ask you, do that for me. Be that for me. I give you my heart. I give you my sins. I give you my eternity. I give you everything. Please save me. That's how faith works. We believe the Bible and we go to Jesus and we call upon him and we trust him and we entrust ourselves to him. That's how it works. But beloved, that kind of faith is, is not a once-for-all deal. That's the way you're to live your life henceforward. Believing the record and going to Jesus. Beloved, that's how your Lord wants you to deal with the giants in your life. Anybody have giants in their lives? I've got giants in my life. Things that are too big for me, things that threaten me. The weakness of my flesh. Temptations that come from all kinds of weird places I'm not prepared and all of a sudden there's this there's this temptation to get angry or to lust or to be discontent certain temptations are giants in my life when people sin against me 
I often feel that the wound produced by their words or actions is a giant too big for me to overcome. I'm going to be paralyzed by what that person said to me. I'm never going to get over that. Or a giant may be an act of providence. You fall. You break your back. You realize your life in this world will never be the same again. The doctor says they found a spot. And it turns out worst case. And you know your life is suddenly different. There are all kinds of giants. What are we to do with the giants in our lives? Christ wants us to bring them to him. There is nothing in your life that's bigger or stronger than Jesus. Bigger or stronger than his love for you. So take it to him. Take all the giants in your life to Jesus. Well, will he make them all go away? No, not necessarily. But I'll tell you what he will do. He'll make you strong enough to defeat them. You can live with them as long as he determines they should be there. And you can live triumphantly over your giants. But you'll have to trust Christ. We love Jesus by trusting him and calling upon him and refusing to be afraid, resisting despair or reliance on the arm of the flesh. He doesn't want you trusting yourself. He doesn't want you trusting your family or your friends or the world. He is jealous that you trust him. You trust him. Thirdly, and I'm going to have to move more quickly. What does it mean to love Christ? Thirdly, loving Christ more means developing an increasing sensitivity of heart to the things in our lives that displease him. Developing a heightened sensitivity to the things in our lives that displease him. Beloved, it should be profoundly troubling to us to realize that we will never stop sinning until we get to heaven and we are made totally new by his grace. That should trouble us. That should not be something that we accept in a whole hum fashion. Though we just stoically say, well, I'm just going to be sinning to the day I die, so I'm not going to sweat it. Yeah? Sometimes I get angry, I'm going to say bad words. I can't help it, I'm just a sinner. God forbid, beloved. That's not the appropriate response. The appropriate response is a resolve that trusting Christ who came to save us from our sins, trusting his grace, we will do everything possible to quit every known sin. After all, what sin in your life must you commit? What known sin in your life must you commit? You just can't help it. Every sin that you know of in your own heart and life, you can conquer by the grace of God. Lust, anger, pride, jealousy, malice. You can conquer that. Tongue, 
the tongue that speaks too quickly. By God's grace, you can conquer that. So as we become aware of our sins, we must not brush them off. We must go to Christ with them. We must apologize. We must confess. Realizing that every sin is loud before Christ. I was watching a YouTube clip um, the other night. It was low-flying jet planes. They showed people on a beach, and here comes a jet fighter. It looks like it's about 10 feet off the water. Boom! And the people are jumping. It's good to see my youngest son here. He didn't tell me he was coming, rascal. Maybe he won't remember this because he's had more exciting life than I had. But we were at the Orange Bowl, the only time in my lifetime that Wake Forest will go to the Orange Bowl. And so I had to go. So we're at the Orange Bowl, January 1st, I think, 2006. It's a really exciting place, and people are standing to sing the national anthem, and nobody knew there was going to be a flyover. And all of a sudden, four jet fighters come out of nowhere and fly over the stadium. It looks like they're about 10 feet off the light columns, and everybody jumps. Listen, your sin, the sin that you think you've got hidden, your sin is as obvious to Christ as that flyover became obvious to me. You can't hide your sin from him. He knows all about it. So what must you do? Well, admit it. That's what he requires. Increase your sensitivity to your sin and take it to him and speak. Now, I want you to listen to what I'm about to say. Very important. Speak his truth to him about your sin. Not your truth. His truth. You know what our truth sounds like when we sin? God said, did you, and we say, the woman you gave me ate, and I took an ate. That's what Adam did, right? He equivocated it. It wasn't my fault, it was her fault. And that's our truth about our sins. Inevitably, it's someone else's fault. Yeah, we did it, but we wouldn't have done it if it hadn't been for this person, that circumstance. And ultimately, we end up blaming God. That's our truth. Here is his truth. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. I have sinned. I have transgressed. For I acknowledge my transgressions. My sin is ever before me against you. And you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. No equivocation. No alibi. I have transgressed. I have sinned. I've done evil. Beloved, the more you love Christ, the more you speak his truth about your sin. Are you doing that? Are you doing that? When was the last time you went to Jesus and said, I just 
sinned. You know I sinned. I know I sinned. I have no excuse. I sinned. Please forgive me. That's loving Christ. You don't try to play games with him. You don't think you can fool him. Lastly, fourth and lastly, increasing love for Christ means increasing joy and delight in our relationship with him. Increasing love means increasing joy to be with him, to be as close to him as you can be. To think of him brings joy. Increasing love means finding more and more joy in Christ. More pleasure in seeking him. Last text, 1 Peter 1. We've read this text last week and we've read it in weeks gone by. There are just some texts that are just so glorious. They need to be read a lot. And this is one of them. 1 Peter 1, 8. Whom, speaking of Jesus, whom, having not seen you, what? Love. Whom, having not seen you, love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, get this, believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible, full of glory, Receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And here Peter is describing what ought to be the climate, the culture of our lives until we get to the end. In preparing this sermon, I was peculiarly gripped and challenged by the words, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Notice notice Peter makes this rejoicing to be the result of loving Christ by faith. It's not the result of a physical experience. It's not that we see him in some way, in some vision. We see him and the sight is so spectacular that it changes us and gives us excitement. It's not that. It's by faith that we love him. Our love, our love is a product of believing into Jesus as we discover him in the Bible, we read about him, we meditate on him, on his words, on his suffering, on his good deeds. We meditate. And as we meditate, we believe. And as we believe, we love. Now the thing that I found so convicting is that this kind of believing and the love that flows from it is supposed to produce joy inexpressible and full of glory. That sounds like a lot of joy to me, doesn't it? Joy too great to put into words. A joy that brings a fullness of glory. And I was convicted, I was challenged to ask myself, how often do I experience such joy in my communion with Christ that it overwhelms me? I can't even put in words. I feel almost like I'm in heaven. 
And I was forced to acknowledge. I don't. I don't know very much about that experience. Peter is writing as though it's a common experience of God's people. But I'd have to say it is not a common experience with me. Why not? I would have to say it's because my love for him and my communion with him are not as vivid, as strong, as intense as they ought to be. I close with these comments. I suspect that almost everyone in this room right now, every Christian, is experiencing some level of trouble and sadness, maybe fear. And I suspect that many of us have come to think that that is what life is. It's trouble, it's sorrow, it's suffering, it's pain. But I want you to remember, you were not created for sorrow. You were not created for sadness. The shorter catechism got it right. The chief end of man is to glorify God and what? Enjoy him. How long? Forever. Nothing there about sadness or sorrow or grief or fear. We were created to glorify God and to enjoy him. The sorrow, the suffering, the fear, the trouble. These are the products of sin in us and sin in the world. But Jesus came to redeem his people out of their fallen condition and to restore them to God and to restore them eventually to their created purpose. And that happens even in an increasing way here and now in this life as we get close to Christ, as we learn to roll our burdens off on him as we believe into him more, take his promises more personally and seriously. We begin in our love for him to experience part of the purpose of God in making us in the beginning the glory of God the joy of God. Joy inexpressible and full of glory. Now, sadly, our lives will never be entirely free of sin or sorrow or sadness, but those things should not be predominant. Not if Christ is predominant, Because he rules over all those things. And he is determined to make them good for us. And we have to trust him. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek. 
that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire of his temple. Beloved, there is more joy in Jesus, more pleasure. You were created for pleasure, and that is found in Christ. More than you think, more than you've ever experienced. But if you're going to experience that, may I give you a couple of suggestions? Get out of your social media for a little while. I'm not a legalist. I've never told you. Can't be on Facebook. Can't. But beloved, if you're going to enjoy Jesus, get off Facebook for a while. Instagram, Twitter, Pinterest, whatever it is, just close that down for a while. Turn off your entertainment. Go into a room, hopefully a room where it's just you and Jesus, and open your Bible and say, Lord Jesus, I really need, I need to be close to you. I want to be close to you. Speak to me. By your spirit, out of your word, draw my heart out to you. And one thing that I would suggest you could include in that private audience with Jesus. I think you could listen to some good music. (laughs) Because part of the glory is communicated through the mystery of music. And listen to biblical hymns with beautiful sounds and talk to Christ and listen as he talks to you. Have you done that recently? I'm going to challenge you. Okay? Set aside 10 minutes a day for the next week to do that. Seek him with all your heart. Cut off every 10 minutes. <laughs> ten, you know, we're, we're not talking about half your life here. We're talking about 10 minutes, right? 10 minutes, seek him. Ask him to fill your heart with his love and his joy. See what happens, okay? Just see what happens. 10 minutes a day. As I... Transition into whatever God has for me. A lot of things I want to say to you, but I can't imagine anything more important than this. Love Jesus more. Love him more. Next week, if he gives us breath, we'll talk about how you go about doing that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we believe in you. You're not some historic figure that came and left and is no more. You existed before the beginning. You were the beginning. You're the one that holds all creation together, including our bodies You're the one who has loved us enough to give yourself for us on the cross. You're the one who forgives our sins, takes away our death, and gives us life eternal. You are real, you are powerful, you are good, and you are willing to meet with us. Make us willing to meet with you. We pray, asking for you to send us away from this place with a sense of your peace and love. Amen.